Thomas Page McVeigh is an author, a journalist, and a television writer who explores the hidden biases and assumptions that drive our cultural narratives about gender and masculinity. His first memoir, Man Alive, explored really sort of what it kind of, quote, means to be a man. As he was moving through his own personal gender transition, it was named a best book in 2014 by NPR and a bunch of other places. Thomas's latest book, Amateur, takes you inside his quest to learn how to box in order to understand masculinity's tie to violence, along with his personal journey to become the first transgender man to ever box in Madison Square Garden, which was an experience that was incited in no small part by emotions that were stirred up by the loss of his mother, how he struggled to deal with them, and how he also realized others were treating him and reacting to him in that season of his life. In today's conversation, we explore how a series of, of really pivotal moments and awakenings and experiences, including an attempted mugging at gunpoint, as well as the loss of his mime, how these shaped his lens on his own gender and identity, his decision to transition, what it was like to go through the experience of becoming socialized as a man in his early 30s, while also working to understand how to really redefine the way he wanted to be in and live in the world. So excited to share this conversation with you. I'm Jonathan Fields, and this is Good Life Project. show is sponsored by meditation app 10% Happier. So the app, it comes with courses that they teach you how to stress better, deal with difficult emotions and build healthier habits. I love that the material is entertaining and relatable. The host, New York Times bestselling author, Dan Harris, he's funny, he's real, he's vulnerable, and he's teamed up with some of the world's best meditation teachers to show you how meditation helps kind of smooth out some of life's wrinkles using cutting edge science and hard won experience to demonstrate the tangible benefits that meditation can have. And listeners of Good Life Project get 40% off. Just go to 10percent.com slash goodlife. That's 10% all spelled out, T-E-N-P-E-R-C-E-N-T dot com slash goodlife. And if you aren't ready to meditate just yet, but are curious how smart, ambitious people use meditation and benefit from it, well then check out the 10% Happier podcast. Either way, you can find it all at 10percent.com slash goodlife. so fascinated by so many sort of like your journey so many places along the yeah. road with your journey um and i want to talk about your most recent book and also the one before that and mm -hmm. a lot of what sort of like led up to it mm -hmm. let's take a big step back in time you you actually were raised in uh, like western pennsylvania pittsburgh yeah. area or somewhere somewhere else pittsburgh area yeah right outside of pittsburgh small town right what was like that what was it like out there for uh <laughs> it's funny because i just came back and wearing my like Pittsburgh We're in the right colors. Now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, I was just out um, doing some work in, out of West Virginia, actually. So I was stopping through Pittsburgh. Um, Pittsburgh is a great town. I mean, it, I was lucky to um, to be raised there in a lot of ways. I think, especially in the '90s, um, it was sort of like a it was sort of a fallow period. Now it's kind of almost like it feels almost like a lot of other sort of mid city global right. hotspot kind of places with the tech uh, industry. But I feel like growing up there, it was the town just had a lot of like culture. It's a quirky place. Yeah. Um, Warhol's from there, you know, it's right. got a, like really big Polish population. It's just like its own special world. So 
I, you know, I mean, I always wanted to move to New York. That was sort of my dream, even as like a very oh, that was your aspiration. As yeah, a kid even? definitely. <laughs> what was it about New York? I mean, I don't know. I think I was like, I was always into you know literary things and film, and um, you know Pittsburgh was so cool in so many ways. But it was obviously uh, relatively right. small, and I knew that you know coming to New York, I would come every summer and generally like any chance I could, especially as I got older and it just felt like such an exciting place comparatively, you know, now I can appreciate everything that's great about Pittsburgh, but I wanted a, a really big life yeah. and I wanted to then be in a really big place to make that life happen. What was the drive behind wanting a really big life? Was there, and, and that's, I'm, I guess I'm, I'm curious on two levels too. Yeah. Um, are you aware of sort of how early that desire touched down at life? Um, like in terms of having a big life yeah. or, you know, my mom was from central Pennsylvania. Like yeah. she grew up in central Pennsylvania and she was from a family of like six kids and she was the third girl, you know, and she was the first in her family to go to a four year college. And, uh, you know, her dad had been a mechanic mm. and she wanted to be a physicist, which was like definitely not a thing that women did in right. the sixties. So I think maybe I inherited a little bit of like that dreamer, like, you know, whatever you, want to be you can be you can if you can imagine it you could do it kind of thing because that worked out for her and so I think maybe it was in part that I was really attracted to like cultural production like I just mm. really wanted to be part of like the art world and like I, it just I wanted to be someplace where that was possible and I don't remember when I probably the first time I went to a big city I was like this is what I want I mean same with LA I remember visiting LA as a kid and same feeling of just like you know there's so much that's happening here, you know, like right. I want to, I want to, I want to be part of a world where everything is happening. And again, now I can appreciate, you know, the, you know, being in the right sized place too. I think yeah. there's something powerful about that. But at the time I just felt like I wanted to be in the middle of everything, you know? Yeah. And, and now you kind of are, well, I, New Yorkers are so jaded. <laughs> We're kind of like, <laughs> there's New York city. Then there's stuff yeah. somewhere outside Definitely. of New York city. It's like, yeah. It's kind of the height of arrogance, but uh, it's also very parochial. I've learned here in New York. It, it, it kind of is. Like at the same time, you have those, yeah. like two different polarities. Um, and you're out in Brooklyn also, so mm -hmm. so that's which is really funny because it's. I feel like Brooklyn is when people think about sort of like what, like they get the pictures of New York, you know, from a generation or two ago, where it's mm -hmm. like everyone hung out on the block. There are stoops. It's much right. more neighborhoody based. The most of that is still left in Brooklyn, at least from what I've seen. I think so, especially where I live, which is right on that Greenpoint border. And yeah. Greenpoint is a lot like Pittsburgh, actually. It reminds me a lot of it with the row houses and the, yeah. the still the, the neighborhood quality of things, you know. So as we're hanging out in New York, so you're coming up outside of Pittsburgh. Your mom actually became a physicist. Also. Yeah, she did. Yeah, she ended up um, she ended up moving to D.C. first and, and uh, she went to college and grad school and then she ended up working for General Electric and was a physicist in the 80s, which is like kind of unheard of for a woman. It was very cool. She was often the only woman in a room, you know, every time yeah. she was at work. And yeah, so I sort of grew up with her as a, you know, I guess as a role model in that sense, gender-wise, yeah. breaking, breaking gender norms. I know your mom has passed, but mm -hmm. um, did you ever have a chance or like in, in later years with her to kind of revisit what that was like for her being in mm -hmm. that environment? I think she always, I mean, we never didn't talk about what that was like. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. In fact, actually, when I, I do a lot of like speaking engagements yeah. now, and when I talk to people who say like, you know, either if we're talking about boys and like reimagining masculinity, or if we're talking about trans kids, like how do we, how do I support my trans kid? Or how do I, 
you know, help help my boy understand that masculinity can be enlarged. Like when that question comes up from parents, I often cite that, you know, for my with my mom and I, it was like just watching someone who you know, had a pretty normative gender expression, have to negotiate gender all the time. And it was always talking about what it was like to, to be a woman in the context of, you know, the expectations, the gender yeah. expectations of work. Like that was like a constant conversation at my house and not, not in a way that was didactic. It was like very nuanced, but she never forgot that she was a woman, mm-hmm. you know, when she was at work uh, and she never had to stop negotiating that with that, you know, but she found a way to make that, I guess a part of her story and a part of her identity. And I, that really stuck with me always as a kid. Yeah. It sounds like you were really close with your mom also. Yeah. We were really close. Yeah. Um, and a much more fraught relationship with your dad. Yeah. Uh, my stepdad actually. Yeah. 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 He abused me growing up and we didn't actually have, we, I mean, we never really had a relationship, uh, you know, but he was a, a man that obviously raised me, uh, but we didn't have like a, uh, a close relationship at all. No. Yeah. You're, um, I'm curious when writing started to touch down with you, you mentioned like you think about New York and LA as big life and cultural centers. Mm-hmm. Was writing a sort of a, a creative or an artistic expression from an early day for you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I started writing, I started writing poetry when I was nine. Oh, no kidding. Because this was a thing that was like, you know, my third grade teacher, obviously, this wasn't like on my own. Um, <laughs> but, but my third grade teacher, Mrs. Nichols had a, um, I mean, this was maybe part of the New York thing now that I'm saying it. Her daughter supposedly was on a soap opera in New York, supposedly. I mean, who knows? This is like my nine-year-old memory. But she said that her daughter was on a soap opera in New York, and if she really liked your poem, she would take you over to where the fax machine was and fax your poem to her daughter, the soap star. <laughs> it's like, and you're like, no better prize than that. <laughs> seriously, it felt so special. And like, I have no idea, like, was there even a daughter? Was she getting faxes? What was she doing with these faxes? That's too fun. <laughs> but like, it really felt like such a, um, you know, like you'd really, you'd really made it if you got a fax to the, to the teacher's daughter. So, right. so I started writing in third grade uh, with, you know, under the sort of tutelage of Mrs. Nichols and with the prize of uh, the soap star you know at the other end of it <laughs> were, were you um did you keep writing after that or was that sort of like a early taste this is kind of cool but not quite ready yet. no i kept writing i mean i started reading when i was four and i, I loved books like mm. you know from an early age and the I, the intimacy that comes with a book you know it's like yeah. you can form this relationship with with not just the book but the person who wrote it and it felt to me like in some so many moments in my life that was a lifeline for me you know just yeah. the the ability to really relate so deeply with another person in that way through, through time and space really so yeah i started when i was nine and then and then I never really stopped writing. I also got interested in film and I went to film school and, right. you know, and so on. And I learned a bunch of different formats like fiction and then I got into journalism and now I'm doing TV. So I've, I've worked across forms, but like I've never stopped being a writer. It's probably the most stable part of my identity. Honestly. Oh, that's so interesting. Yeah. Um, do you, I mean, it's interesting to sort of like, a, it's part of your identity. It's also an expressive outlet. Um, and now that you write across all different domains, um, fiction, nonfiction, film, um, books, articles, mm. it's interesting because because I feel like so much fiction now is so strongly informed by reality. Mm-hmm. Uh, I feel like a lot of uh, fiction are actually people's memoirs, but they mm-hmm. just needed like an extra ten percent, yeah, to, like spice it up. So, like, <laughs> and they knew they couldn't sort of like ethically say it uh-huh. was it was a memoir, so they're like, all right. Yeah. Like it's, it's nonfiction now. So when you come out and you start writing, was your intention coming out of education mm-hmm. to, to make that your jam? 
I didn't think it was really possible, actually. Like, I never thought... Just, like, from sustaining yourself? Yeah. Thing, yeah. I mean, I or I didn't know how it was possible. Like, yeah. there's not, like, a great business model for being an artist. So I, I kind of assumed I was going to have to figure out some sort of alternative. And, and, and I spent a lot of time trying to find the alternative that was both satisfying but not so, like, vampiric that it took, you know, all of my energy away so I couldn't write books. Um, yeah. And, like, I taught for a long time. I taught at the School of the Arts in San Francisco, and that was awesome. Taught, I taught writing there. I taught some college classes. And journalism ended up being, like, a great middle ground for, for, you know, for a long time because I was able to write. And then my last book actually was an article that I turned into a right. book. So, um, so I often have tried to find some sort of, like, way to, you know, balance the, the financial piece with the with the writing piece of it yeah <laughs> as does every every sort of like artist out there yeah exactly out, okay so where's the sweet spot between it's also it's, so many people i've talked to in sort of like the uh like the tv and film world they're like okay so it's it's like one for me one for the studio mm -hmm. yeah <laughs> sure like they get, everyone has their own sort of they figure out the puzzle pieces to be yeah. able to sustain themselves that way yeah, and it's like negotiating capitalism. I mean, you know, it's like we all have to eat and we all have to figure out how to live. There's that. Yeah. <laughs> Especially if you're living in New York. Exactly. Yeah. So how do you do that? You know, I kind of always have tried to figure out. Luckily for me, I think I'm less of a purist. I'm more of a, like, communicator. I'm really interested in, like, reaching people and using what I'm good at to try to f tell stories in a way yeah. that, like, reaches people. So I think I've less been concerned with being, like, I want to create something that is aesthetically exactly what I want, you know, at all costs. And more like, I've always thought of myself as someone who, you know, wants to make the most beautiful transcendent thing that also reaches the most people possible, you know? And I think having that goal, maybe in a way, gives me a little more flexibility about how that looks, what format it is. Um, and it makes makes it more fun. I can kind of play across formats, which right. is really, um, like, it's less pressure in some ways, because I get to always be a beginner, some, you know, or not always, but I, I try to keep a beginner's mind about writing as much as anything else yeah i mean i think when you lose that you just the, you're just the only thing that happens to your world whether it's your creative life your professional life your relational life yeah it just it gets smaller I um, agree. but that's what we give us so often we're like we work so hard to get to the status of expert mm -hmm. you know just so we can kind of say okay so we're defined we're mapped and maybe that'll eliminate some of the uncertainty mm -hmm. and it also and, and maybe to a certain extent it does but at the same time it brings just staleness, like this static nature to, mm -hmm. to life. Yeah. I mean, I think every time I feel like an expert in something, I try to deconstruct it as quickly as possible. <laughs> <laughs> Creative destruction. Yeah, right. seriously. Because I just don't really believe that's possible. I don't think you can truly be an expert at anything. You know, I mean, you can know a lot, but, you know, life's a dream. Everything's always changing. You know, time is whatever, like always unstable. Yeah. No, nothing about life seems like something you can really hang on to. And I think that's like kind of the spiritual task of being a person is realizing that. So every time I start to feel like I know everything, I'm like, what do I not know? You know? Right. <laughs> and how can I go towards that? Next? Right. And you're like, oh, the universe of that is vastly large. Yeah, exactly. Um, and more interesting. Yeah. I mean, if, if you're that person who is creative with stepping into, you know, like Joseph Campbell's abyss, mm-hmm. Uh, which most of us are not, you know, and, yeah. and even when we get comfortable with like a certain level of uncertainty plus stakes, mm -hmm. you know, like you raise a level of uncertainty or you raise the stakes or you, mm -hmm. you know, amplify both of those simultaneously and we freak out again. Yeah, that's true. But maybe like, you know, I mean, I've had, I've just experienced so many things in, in a very short life that yeah. I think makes me, make me realize that nothing that we 
count on is really something we can count on. And that's really scary. Uh, but also, I mean, Buddhists have been thinking about that for years, you know, right. millennia. Like, so it is so deeply human to not be able to really count on permanence. And it's so deeply human to want it and to think if we just do this one thing, then everything will feel constant and rooted and grounded. And, and then something comes along and disrupts that again. And I mean, everything from like, I mean, I'm trans, so obviously my transition, but I also mean like death. I mean, my mom's lo- losing my mom was just as disruptive to my life as transitioning, you know, because it's like that totally changed how I saw myself, the world, my yeah. place in it. And I think we all have that people who get to like divorce. I mean, there's so many things that happen good and bad having a kid um that that totally shift our worldviews and then life is just a series of those things so getting comfortable with them you know it seems like a uh, important task yeah so <laughs> agree i feel like we spend so much money just trying to lock down the future mm-hmm. rather than cultivating the skills to be okay with the fact that we never can no exactly um and then just embracing you know like yeah. cause th- there's no i mean <laughs> such a cliche to say, you know, like there's always a, an opportunity and possibility with mm-hmm. any big disruption or change. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, it's also truth. Yeah, <laughs> it is true. It sucks big time. Sometimes it's change you don't want, you don't see coming. And it may mm-hmm. take years to kind of navigate what is, where is the, the possibility on the other side of this. But I have never m- met in my own life or, or known somebody who hasn't gone through windows like that. And we all will, mm-hmm. where at some point, if they were open to it, after a lot of processing and sometimes a lot of suffering and pain, there was a world that you had the opportunity to remake in a way that that had a sense of of possibility that was different than what existed before. Yeah, and like further authenticity kind of, yeah. you know? Like I think so much of like the adventure of life I found is like, you know, what is actually constant? Like what is the what is the true truest part of you that that mm. does stay the same across, like, whatever, across moves or relationships or, you know, big life transitions or whatever. I mean, there, there are things that are fundamental about all of us that we can only discover by putting ourselves in different situations and having things happen to us. And if we never have that happen, then we're operating under an illusion that the things we control are somehow the things that define us. But actually, it's the opposite. It's the things, you know, it's who you are, as they say in boxing. Uh, it's who you are after you get knocked down that actually tells you who you really are as a fighter. I mean, that's that's the same idea. Like, do you get up? Like, not just that, but how do you get up? And what do you do next? Like, that's that's actually the most bare, naked version of who you really are. Yeah, no, so agree. So you're you're moving through life, getting bare with your own identity and, and sort of like exploring it and writing a lot also. 2010, mm-hmm. um, big incident happens that kind of like shifts a lot for you. Yeah, I, got, I was living in uh, the Bay Area at the time. Yeah. Um, and my ex and I were walking home from like the BART station and it was before my transition, but I was always like an androgynous person. Like I was like very masculine. I guess you would call me, you know, in today's parlance, like uh, uh, a non-binary or, you know, somebody who was more just sort of a masculine appearing androgynous person. And I was walking with my ex and we were walking down the street and uh, this guy came up behind me. Well, he came up behind us and he tackled me. And uh, it then ended up in this like very long protracted mugging, I guess is what it ended up being. Um, but he held us at gunpoint for like 10 minutes. And I say us, but really it was me. Like he kind of ignored her. Like he, you know, and it was very odd. Like, and at the time, I mean, I totally froze. I really thought I was going to die. I mean, it was like the guy had a gun literally to my temple and was just like not present. Like so he was on something and really freaking out. And, 
But what was especially hard was that like, you know, as this was going on and on, I didn't know what to do or how to handle myself or what to say. Like I just really left my body. And uh, eventually at some point he'd been asking, you know, for money and she had been sort of doing all the talking and he really was not paying attention to her at all. And eventually I said like, you know, I don't, I don't have cash. I just have credit cards. And when I talked, it was before my voice had changed, obviously, because I wasn't, I hadn't transitioned yet. So when I talked, I think he realized I wasn't a man, uh, you know, in, in that moment. And so he, he just sort of snapped out of it and he let us go and we ran away. And later, so at the time I thought, that's weird. Like, it seemed like something happened when I spoke. Like, it's almost like the spell was broken. Right. But you um, had no idea, like, what actually had happened. I didn't yeah. know at the time, but I, I kind of knew. Insta- in- intuitively, I knew. It had mm. something to do with me talking. Like, I knew that that changed things. And I also knew as I ran away, um, and in the days that followed, it, you know, I, I knew that he had seen me for what I wasn't. And even though that saved my life... I knew that's not what I was. Like I, I had been really thinking a lot about my gender in the last in those last few years there, and it was really profound because I felt like, wow, that that really saved my life. If I had transitioned any earlier, then maybe I'd be dead. And actually, it turned out that he went on to profile other couples and do the same thing. But he shot another man who lived, and he shot another man who died in the same kind of scenario over the course of a couple of months. So, and they caught him eventually. So, so I wasn't wrong, actually. <laughs> you know. Um, and it was really, it was really interesting because it's like obviously it was terrible, but it it helped me understand myself in this way that I never expected. And also because I'd grown up being abused by my dad, sexually abused by my dad, I think the sort of juxtaposition of, in many ways, feeling targeted for the body I had, and then feeling like freed because of the body I had was like a kind of full circle thing for me. That kind of I don't know, it like wrapped something up on a trauma level, and I was oddly free after that and you know within a year i started my transition yeah free from what and free to to do what i guess free from whatever my narrative or worry was about you know i felt very protective of the part the part of me that had been abused like i didn't want to i don't know i think it was complicated because i i knew my gender wasn't what what i was sort of being in the world and I had already like had top surgery and I, and I kind of, I kind of knew I was trans, but I, I was hesitant. There was something that was feeling not right. And I think it was something about the trauma and like almost having this idea that if I transitioned, I was going to like abandon the self that I had before or somehow like affirm some sort of idea I had about what my stepdad thought about female people or something. I mean, it didn't really make a logical sense, but there was an emotional thing for me about, thinking that I was targeted for the body I had. And I, and I, I think that then in this odd way, when having the body of, of a person who wasn't male actually was like the saving grace versus the thing that was the targeting, you know, part of me, something about that, like, I don't know, it just liberated me from the whole story. I don't know how else to explain it. I just felt like, wow, like, you know what? I feel like I have a clean slate. Every kind of trauma idea or, or notion I had about this is like, kind of feels like it's been wiped clean. And now I'm just like, almost starting over. And like, who am I really? You know? I mean, it was almost mystical. It was very, not the kind of thing I, you know, I'm sure if I got mugged tomorrow, it would not at all feel like this, but. Right. <laughs> not inviting repeat experiences. No, definitely like, not. It'd be cool if it didn't happen, but. Um... But you know, it wasn't just that too. It was like, it was the, you know, it was, it was getting to run away. And then I did a lot of research when I wrote my first book about somatics and yeah. And like, so like 
actually having the capacity to run away can really like help people who are having, you know, like animals do that. They run. And that's why deer never get traumatized because they get to like run and then they get to rejoin a herd. Uh, I mean, there's been real study on this and that's what happened too. It's like we ran and these strangers took us into their house and we called the police and the whole way that it all kind of unfolded felt like I wasn't alone in what happened, you know, Mm. and there was sort of a world to catch me and people around and it was the whole thing had like an oddly healing quality and also a very clarifying quality. Cause like I said, I just also felt so sure in my heart. Like I understood why he'd let me go mm-hmm. and I knew he hadn't seen me for who I was. And it was, it was sort of like I'd been toying with like with making this big change in my life and it was really scary and I wasn't sure. And when that happened, I felt like, no, you know, this saved my life. There couldn't be a more positive in a way version of, you know, of being seen for, for who I am in this body. And I just don't feel like this person. It's not who I really am, you know? Yeah. Good Life Project is supported by HubSpot. Complex enterprise software, it shouldn't get in the way of launching your next campaign. That is why HubSpot built the new Marketing Hub Enterprise. So say goodbye to countless hours of software management. Their platform offers the power and flexibility that scaling companies need to succeed with the ease of use that you expect. So you match every customer interaction to revenue, use AI to test and optimize, and create more personalized experiences. Plus, you can integrate HubSpot with hundreds of other tools and apps. So stop managing your outdated and overly complex software and start creating remarkable customer experiences. Learn more about the new features in Marketing Hub Enterprise at hubspot.com slash Wondery. That's hubspot.com slash Wondery. It's that time of year when everyone's traveling, running around, getting thoughtful gifts for the people you care about. Where here is a cool idea. Give yourself the gift of an Audible membership. So now is the best time to do it with a special offer of 53% off your first three months. So you get access to an unbeatable selection of audiobooks, including bestsellers, uh, motivation, mysteries, thrillers, memoirs, pretty much everything you could imagine. You can choose three titles every month, one audiobook and two exclusive Audible originals that you can't hear anywhere else. Listen on any device, anytime, anywhere with the Audible app. It's great while commuting, at the gym, during your holiday travels. I devour audiobooks very often from many of the guests that we actually have on this show. You know, Adam Rippon's Beautiful on the Outside made me laugh out loud. Also really love David Epstein's audiobook, Range. And I'm about halfway through Mike Rose, the way I heard it right now. He's such an incredible storyteller. And with Audible, you also enjoy really easy audiobook exchanges and your own audiobook library you will keep forever, even if you can't. And another feature that I actually love is in their app, it's the ability to choose your listening speed. I often listen at one and a half times speed, which lets me enjoy even more audiobooks in way less time. Right now, for a limited time, you can get three months of Audible for just $6.95 a month. That's more than half off the regular price. Visit audible.com slash goodlife or text goodlife to 500-500. That's audible.com slash goodlife or text goodlife to 500-500. A-U-D-I-B-L-E dot com slash G-O-O-D-L-I-F-E or text G-O-O-D-L-I-F-E to 500-500. Or just click the link in the show notes. 
to in reflection was I know there's everything leading up to that, but you feel like it was that moment that finally became like the final straw and saying, okay, okay, yeah, it's sort of like time to go, you know, to go all into whatever I need to do to 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 feel like I I am the person I need to be in the world in all in in all forms. Um, yeah, that's right, yeah. and. It felt like, I mean, I also had a lot of fears that most trans people have about like, what will happen? Will my family reject me? Will my partner leave me? Will my, what will, you know, will my life change in ways that I, you know, I'm not going to be happy with, but yeah, it was just, I think it was a strange gift to just, to really understand that, that, that no matter what the future was, I couldn't, the present I was living in just wasn't working for me. And I mean, obviously there was other stuff too. I had, I did have dysphoria. I had all kinds of things that were where I was trying to sort of walk this line and manage, you know, in retrospect, manage what wasn't really, what really wasn't working for me anymore. But this was just like the, like you said, the last straw, it was like, it was the kind of confirmation I needed to make this change. Yeah. Um, and I know you've written about a, a lot about sort of like that window of time in, in your first book, Man Alive, um, really questioning, because I guess once you you get to that place where you're like, okay, so it's time, maybe you don't even know exactly what like this next evolution is going to look or feel like or be like, but you're like, it is time to step into a different place. And then this question gets planted and maybe your language is better for it, but you know, from, it seemed like the big question was some blend of what, what does it mean to, to actually be be a man or to be yeah. male or to be and, and to be a, a good um mm-hmm. man in, in this day and age and also just personally for you mm-hmm. like what what actually is that mm-hmm. um is that is that accurate or is it yeah i mean i think for sure like i my first question is like what is a man even like and uh, why why is that something that i want to be like right. why can't i just be who i am in this body like why is this a why do i feel drawn like i didn't even understand myself you know and i still don't totally know like gender is a mystery you know i don't know like in in many ways like i you know my interest in in writing and thinking about masculinity i think a way i try to be a bridge in the world is by and i often tell people this it's like on one hand, it's like I get all of the ways that gender is a construct. And on the other hand, I'm a trans man. Like, I couldn't be someone who's more invested in, like, you know, in in my version of masculinity. So I, I try to hold both of those things at the same time. And and it, to me, felt like kind of a spiritual journey to figure out, like, what is my version of being a man? And I think the idea of a good man probably it was what I thought initially, like, that I wanted to be a, quote, good man. But in the last, you know, eight years that I've been making masculinity my beat as it were uh and like you know which happened through it so happened that that my interest in this which coincided with my transition in 2011 also coincided with the masculinity crisis the post-recession conversations about masculinity i mean the last eight years was probably like one of the most interesting times to be thinking about this question about what is masculinity what does it mean what is american masculinity and what is a good man you know Maybe that was my first question, but I really learned quickly that that's not the right question to ask, you know, um, because for there to be good men, there have to be bad men. Mm. So even the the notion that there's some sort of, first of all, way to be a real man, you know, means yeah. that there have to be fake men. For there to be good men, there have to be bad men. And I learned eventually, many years later, to think about it more like um, the way the developmental psychologist, Niobe Way, who I've spoken to for a bunch of stories, she told me to think of it like, um, instead of saying, asking yourself, like, am I a good man? You ask yourself, what am I doing to maintain the status quo? And if that's mm-hmm. really, you know, if your real interest is in making the world a better place, a more equitable place to, you know, address ways that masculinity has helped codify sexism, racism, transphobia, et cetera, then 
thinking about disrupting the status quo is a more useful exercise and actually one that allows latitude because most men, like most, most people (laughs) make mistakes, like don't do things perfectly, need to learn and grow. So if your bar is always having to be good or the opposite is you're bad, that's not really, you spend a lot more time protecting the image of good than Mm -hmm. you do actually doing good, you know? Yeah, no, that makes so much sense. I, I mean, and just the idea of, um, well, it's, it's the idea of we can define it, you know, like, Everything in binaries, mm-hmm. you know, right. good, good and bad. <laughs> yeah, you know, um, and rather than yeah, I'm I, I'm a person in the world, mm-hmm. and I do things, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. you know, and and that behavior yeah. can land in a lot of different ways, mm-hmm. and yeah, and it's not necessarily um, an identity level thing. Um, I mean, I mean, the idea of you know, you sort of brushed over the idea of gender as construct, also, and I know there's there's so much fascinating conversation around gender these days, right? Mm. And your sort of tension in the middle of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet, like, I keep coming back to this idea of gender as construct, almost like social construct, mm-hmm. and how the conversation around that, I feel like really just in the last four or five years, mm-hmm. I don't know if it's shifting dramatically, but it's being held publicly in a way mm-hmm. I've never seen it before. Yeah. I mean, feminism definitely brought this conversation to, you know, the idea of women in the world, like, you know, many, many decades ago, like this like, conversation yeah. about like, how do we make, you know, how do we construct femininity? What does it mean to be a woman, you know, and, and what does that actually have to do with people's biology, you know, if anything? And I think only recently, because of the way masculinity is constructed, and because like, there's a lot, of, there are a lot of people who are very invested in masculinity being the way it is, like, and we, we start so socializing boys so young, yeah. literally in infancy, it's very hard. I mean, to say something's a construct, I think the reason I brush over it is only because I think sometimes like any binary, <laughs> you know, when people sort of think of it as a construct, it, it makes it sound like it's easy to change or something that is like yeah, um, not deeply rooted when right. in fact, actually we're incredibly adaptable organisms. I mean, in Denmark, you know, like it, this is in my book, but in Denmark, when you ask a man what the opposite of a man is, they say a boy. And in the U S when you ask the man and a man, what the opposite of a man is, they say a woman. And those are very different cultures and a pretty like you know, I think enlightening way of, of looking at, like when you think being the opposite of a man as a woman and when like sort of sustaining masculinity and being real is about proving how manly you are all the time, then, then you get these things like the man box and like, you know, behaviors that people, you know, now call toxic. And it doesn't mean that you as a man have to be any of those things, but if your entire life is spent trying to succeed in your masculinity and that's something we teach you at a young age is like what you're supposed to do in order to be a man i mean these are deeply rooted behaviors and biases are deeply rooted and they're related to those behaviors so i think that it's not that um these things can't be changed and can't be changed actually every single day by all of us but i think it's also like a misnomer to think it's not just because actually a lot of the biology that we think exists isn't really there in the way we think it doesn't mean that it's not powerful in fact, can I tell you about a study? Actually, yeah, my favorite. Totally. This is my favorite fact that I learned when I was researching my book. But I talked to Robert Sapolsky, the famous yeah. uh, neurobiologist out of Stanford, and I asked him if testosterone makes you aggressive because the conceit of the book is that I asked people all these questions I had about being a man. And uh, he said, no, that's actually the biggest misconception about testosterone. He said, there's no aggression receptor in your brain. That's not like a thing. But he says it makes men status-seeking. And they've run economic games out of Stanford where the way you win the game is by being cooperative. So the most cooperative people win. And so in those games, the men with the highest testosterone always win the games. So they're the most cooperative. But then if they give a guy um, a placebo and they tell him it's testosterone, 
those guys, the ones who got the placebo, act like total jerks during the game. So even though there's literally no relationship between that behavior and, you know, and the the game itself or the outcome, like it doesn't matter. Like our idea about the biology of it or just the notion of masculinity as connected to testosterone is really, yeah. really deep. It's so it's so fascinating. Just like our beliefs about what it's supposed to do with us, quote in popular literature. Yeah literally changes our behavior. And probably people in that study weren't even aware of the fact that oh, they no. had like changed in this way. They just like, there, there's this society is telling you for like over and over, this is what, you know, like this particular chemical in your body makes you do. That's right. And it's so um, deep. It's yeah. like the unconscious of it is so deep. I mean, I, I've taken implicit bias tests and, and I'm sexist, you know, like, which is something that well, I, I mean, it, it, try to talk about a lot. Right. Is, is, isn't that like one of the big things here? It's like people are like, no, not me, not me, not right. me. It's like, no, yes, all of us. All actually. of us, <laughs> which I find freeing, actually. Yeah. I, I think if we could see that, we could actually change things. But yeah. that's the thing about the good man, you know? Right. Like it, exactly. Yeah. Because you can't say, oh, I took an implicit bias test. I'm sexist. Also, I'm a good man. It doesn't sound like those things are related, you know, which is why I don't think it's useful to think that way. Yeah. No, that makes so much sense. And and I think the conversation around that also, around the idea of bias, what it is, what it isn't, and implicit versus explicit. Mm-hmm. Um and it's it's I, I love that all of the conversations are just being had. It feels like more often in a more mm-hmm. public way, a lot of times in a very charged way. Mm-hmm. But I feel like also there's a like a glimmer of more space for it to be had yeah. in in a humane way where you sit across from one person or a group of people just open to like the shared humanity in the room and yeah. just say like, can we just talk? Um, yeah. I feel like also the, the last few years we've been through, there's so much vitriol and so much there's so much yearning for space like that right now. No, I agree. I mean, I've, first of all, every question I had that was in my last book, because, you know, that was this conceit as I asked all these questions, every single one of those questions led back to boyhood. I mean, and Mm. I think that actually, when I talk to people and we start talking about being a boy or children, it's like takes the, the vitriol right out of the conversation, first of all, because what we're doing in terms of socializing our children is a totally different conversation than, you know, I'm a man and my identity and like whatever. It's like, let's talk about what it is to socialize boys into this kind of masculinity. So I, I think, first of all, that kind of conversation is different. And I, I'm finding more and more people are willing to have that conversation. But also every guy I talk to has a story about boyhood that affirms these ideas, you know? And it's always a painful story. Like I did a podcast once where I was talking to this guy who actually told me that he said this, that he hadn't even told his wife this, but and he told the whole, everyone who was listening to the podcast, but he said that um, growing up, like he, he swayed his hips when he walked and, you know, the other boys made fun of him, you know, cause he was quote girly. And he said, I'm 40 years old, and I just realized in this, having this conversation that I actually have been holding myself in this rigid way this, ever since. I've never actually walked the way that was comfortable. you know. And, and stories like that, everyone has a story like that. All guys I know have a story like that. And, and I think that way into talking about all of this stuff is so much more, I don't know, poignant. And like, there's, more you can, there's further you can go there than talking about, you know, are white men ruining America or whatever? I mean, I think that's not that's not the way to have the conversation because there's no change that's going to come from that. But like, let's talk about like how actually masculinity works. Let's talk about how you experienced it, and then let's talk about like the effects it clearly has. I mean, men are more likely to kill people, kill themselves, like have mass shootings, like you know, die early. I mean, there's so many costs to to the way we socialize this gender role. So yes, it harms other people, but also it harms us. Yeah, I, it's an interesting part of the conversation, right? Because I, so much of the conversation uh, often goes to the privileged side, which it, 
no doubt is a hundred percent there. A hundred percent there. Like there's no negation of that whatsoever. You know, the um but it's it's interesting because I, I almost wonder if if you're speaking to somebody about a privilege and they are the person who is perceived to have more privilege, mm -hmm. um, that rather than starting the conversation with that, like the the way in that actually opens the door to um, a lot more change is what you're saying is let's talk about your childhood. Let's get a little yeah. Freudian here. Because when we go back there, it's kind of like you forgive yourself mm -hmm. for whatever societal shaping or familial shaping led you to be this this person that you yeah. are today but it's kind of like okay so this quote happened to me rather than me at three years old choosing right. for this and choosing for this and choosing for this and i think i almost wonder if you can kind of go back there you're like oh so that gives you a certain sense of openness to to take responsibility to yeah. over then the quality and nature of how you behave today mm -hmm. and and then more intentionality about how you want to move into the world from that moment forward. That's how, I mean, that's my feeling about it. Like, yeah. I, and I think what I've tried to do is really like foreground that I had the luxury in some ways of having this very rapid socialization at, you know, starting at 30. Right. Right. I mean, <laughs> you know? what a profound difference. Yeah. yeah. When you have frontal lobes and you can actually understand yeah. what's going on, like I, as a person who is experiencing male socialization, at, you know, in, in my early thirties, I could under, I could see what was happening to me. And I myself was just, I mean, it's not like I had some sort of great transcendent way of dealing with it. I just was doing all the same stuff everybody else was doing. I was getting into like street fights. I mean, I was, I was, um, shutting down. I was not, you know, like less affectionate because people, because people were treating me a certain way. So I was trying to, I was operating within that box. And the first few years of my transition were really like, like, when I was at home and looking in the mirror and stuff and I'm, and just feeling in my body, it felt amazing. But when I would leave the house and have to interact with people, I mean, the positives were, were upsetting. Like the privileges were beyond what I ever expected. I mean, we all say, yeah, we understand men have privilege, but like, no, we don't, not really. I mean, literally I could silence an entire room just by talking when before I couldn't because unconsciously people were reacting to my voice in a different way. I mean, there were things that were happening that were not anyone's conscious choice, but were clearly privileges. So that was way beyond what I even expected. But the flip side of it was that I was constricted in ways I never imagined were going to happen to me. And in so many ways, the second book I wrote was came from a place of true desperation. Like I really felt like I, you know, my mom died. I was going through grief. I felt like I couldn't be anything but angry. And I know that that's a lot of experience that, you know, men experience in general and that boys, when they're going through um, puberty, like they learn to shut everything else down. Like, I mean, this is clinical you know, research. Like they learn to dis dis like disentangle from empathy, from intimacy, from what Niobe Way calls the things that make you human. Uh, that's part of becoming a man. And as I was going through that and being like, really, I traded everything for this? Like, what about like all of these skills I have to relate to people and to be close to people? So I think, yeah, that the way into having this conversation, it's not about throwing out, quote, masculinity. And it's not about um, telling men that, especially white men, because I'm also speaking very specifically about white masculinity. It's not about telling you know us that it's like, let's just, you know, let's not have gender at all. I think that's what people kind of think it all means. I, I think it's more like, can we expand this so that all of the other qualities that make us human can be part of part of masculinity? And 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 again, as a person who's very invested in my masculinity, uh, it's not that I I want masculinity to disappear. I just want it to feel humane. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. You said when you're after your mom passed, you felt like the only reaction that you could have 
was the rea- the way that sort of like a, a typical mm-hmm. um, male would behave in a moment like that, which is, I think a lot of us from the outside, like, you know, less emotive, you mm-hmm. know, like, you know, keep Stoic. it inside more, mm-hmm. like more, more anger, more rage, mm-hmm. rather than just more open, more conversational, more emotional, which I think people would typically associate mm-hmm. as, as more feminine qualities. Rather, I mean, did you feel like literally feel like you couldn't, was it just that you couldn't personally access them for some reason? Or you felt like if you did, it would be dissonant with sort of like who you had stepped into in the world. Neither. I felt like when I expressed things with anything but anger, it, you know, you get really sensitive to what people are doing in response to you. And I felt like people, well, first of all, you know, I mean, my friends are great, but in the beginning when I think people were trying to affirm my masculinity a lot. There was just, a, I think no one quite knew, knew exactly how to do that, you know? So in some ways, I think the people around me generally were kind of like giving me space or doing the things you, you know, it's like people reached out, but it was like, on the other hand, like, you know, I, I remember being, being very aware that like nobody was really touching me. Like I didn't really get as many, like, you know, like hugs. And, and in those moments, like that's when you most notice it. Like, uh, so I felt like there was just, the people around me were less physically affectionate or checking in, but not in the way where it was sort of like inviting an actual conversation. And, and I knew that when I expressed being mad, like, which was part of my grief, of course, people seemed like they could handle that. And that was a way that I could engage people like, like feeling angry and upset in that way. But if I seemed, um, if I seemed anything but angry, I could tell it made people uncomfortable. Like, what do I do with this guy? Like, you know, and, and so it wasn't that I didn't have all those feelings. It just was almost like felt like I was just getting funneled further and further in this one direction because we're social animals. So like I wanted to have comfort and connection and that was the way it was possible. And in the end, like too, I was, I, I wanted comfort and connection, but I also felt like, I don't know the capacity for that. It was limited in in the people around me and, and I noticed it and I, I don't know. I just knew that that was true. So, you know, eventually I had a very good friend from home who I, you know, I really remember this because, like, it was like a year after my mom died. I went back to Pittsburgh and I had um, dinner with this friend and and my and my wife. I mean, she was my girlfriend at the time, and we were all talking. And I and I I actually said to her, you know, I just I guess I just kind of feel like I don't I can't talk about this with anyone. I don't really know what to do. And she said, I had no idea you felt this way. Like, hmm. you can always call me. You can always talk to me. And you know, I'm so sorry that I wasn't clear about that. I mean, it was like. I think it occurred to her too, like, oh, wow, I've really been treating him differently than I ever would have before. Even though I've known this person since we were like 15 years old, I'm just having a different response. And that kind of shifted things for me once that was acknowledged. But yeah, it was strange. Yeah. I I mean, to sort of like navigate that window of time and then at the same time navigate this just extraordinary grief, uh, just all compounding. Yeah. (laughs) The way that like you're just like pile on, pile on, pile on, which I guess also led to, I mean, like your, your last book, Amateur, you know, like the inciting incident there is this is really what the lead up to. Yeah, exactly. So I was walking around just mad because eventually that's all I felt was just angry all the time. And it was 2015. It was the year before obviously the election. But I mean, I don't know if you've ever been in a street fight. Most people have it. (laughs) When I was like in sixth grade and I wouldn't call it a street fight. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. But like for whatever reason that summer, I mean, not for whatever reason, that summer I had three different guys try to fight me in the street. And it was like after my mom died and it was again ahead of the election. I think people were mad. I think there was, I mean, it was all the same kind of guy. It was like a white guy who looked a little disheveled, you know, and, and it was just somebody who wanted to start something with me. And then the last time that I almost got into a fight was this dude who like 
I don't know. It was like he thought I was taking a picture of his car. It doesn't even matter what the premise was. Like it wasn't about anything real, but we had this like face off that went on for a while, like, you know, five or 10 minutes. And like he sort of chased me and then I was like screaming at him. And like it was so embarrassing in retrospect, but it was just like I was so fed up and he was clearly so fed up about whatever he was fed up about. I mean, we're strangers and we're just like yelling at each other and like really coming close to, to, to blows. And then in the end, I kind of like, I fell back on an old trick of just sort of freaking out and seeming like a little out of my mind, which like works really well because, you know, he was like, well, I don't want to deal with this and went away. And, but that for me, like, I really did feel like I, I was so willing to actually go there with this guy. And I thought like, who am I? Like, what makes me any different than him? If I'm, if I'm ready to like fight in the street, I mean, I would never do that now, you know, but it was just a moment of, true bottom, like hitting a true bottom and feeling like nothing mattered. And so when that happened, the question that popped into my mind as a reporter is just like, why do men fight? And then I realized I'm not allowed to ask questions about masculinity. That's kind of like the first rule, like fight club. You're not supposed to ask any questions, you know, especially if you have quote a fragile masculinity like I did. And then that, it felt like a door opened. Like I was just like, you know what, I'm going to ask. And so I started um, you know, I report, I, I pitched a um, story idea to my boss at Quartz, which was like, you know, I'd like to learn how to fight, fight in a white collar charity match, figure out why these other guys are trying to fight at all when they don't have to. And then in the answer, you know, in the process of that, try to answer this question of like, why do men fight anyway? Like, and, and then these other questions I had about like socialized masculinity. And so that was what led to the, then the, the article and then the book. But yeah, I mean, it really came from a moment of just like, I don't know, I don't know what else to do. I know I'm not supposed to ask any questions, but yeah, I, I like I can't keep living this way. Right, you're like I, I'm at the center of this right now. Yeah. I'm living this every day. Like, exactly. and I mean, like, it's, it's so interesting the, the the line that sometimes comes between. Okay, it's so like I'm wearing my professional hat. This is my like. This is what we're supposed to do. This is what we're trained to do, mm-hmm. and I want to do it to the best of my ability. And at the same time, this is so deeply and profoundly personal to me. Mm-hmm. It affects me, and and. I can't see how I can't in some way be in in the center of this. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's such a cool thing to have reporting, like training as a reporter. It's like, you know, that's like the whole point. And and I don't know why I hadn't thought of it until that moment, but mostly because I, I mean, when I would ask other guys, like, you know, how do you handle it when, you know, this happens or when you're in a locker room and somebody says something like this to you or whatever, guys would always just say like, well, either, you know, guys are just like that or, which is like, boys will be boys or, well, you're not that kind of guy. Almost like, just drop out. You know what I mean? Like, and it's like, I I couldn't drop out. I don't think nobody can drop out. We're all in this together, you know? So I think that just the pure dissatisfaction I was having with like what felt, it felt like there were no alternative ways of of finding the answer. I, I wished there was at the time an easier way, but when I couldn't find it, it felt like, you know, I went through all this trouble. (laughs) Might as well try to like live a more authentic version of this, of this gender identity. Yeah. So who doesn't want to find the best brands in all lifestyle categories combined with fast, free, one-day shipping, free returns, and 24-7 customer care? Verishop is a new online shopping site with the fashionable brands you need for every moment in your life from women's and men's fashion to home decor, beauty, and wellness. And they get your purchases to you fast with free one-day shipping and free returns with no membership fee and no minimum purchase required. Verishop's expert retail team hand selects and sources every single item from more than 300 
brands from all over the world. So there's no chance of counterfeits or fake goods. Vershop even gives you the option to pay over time and their customer care representatives are available 24 seven by phone, text, or email. Shop Vershop for the fastest free shipping out there. And with our promo code, new Vershop customers can take 15% off the first purchase to try it out. Just go to vershop.com slash goodlife and use our code goodlife. That's V-E-R-I-S-H-O-P dot com slash goodlife with the code goodlife for 15% off your first purchase. Exclusions apply. So you end up getting assigned effectively from, you know, to, to do a piece on men in gyms that like very often um, is part of like a charity fundraising type of thing. And then as part of that, you become, you train to, yeah. to actually box, which ends up being like you boxing for, um, you know, for good mm-hmm. in Madison Square Garden. Mm-hmm. What I, I mean, so many ways to possibly deconstruct that, but what I, what I think is really fascinating is sort of like what you experienced, um, training, mm-hmm. you know, in the, the culture of the gym, the culture mm-hmm. of what happens and how things flip and really meaningful ways in that culture. Yeah. It was so surprising actually. Like I hadn't, I hadn't had a homosocial experience with other men, like where it was like basically an all male environment. I had not had that experience in my life. And so, and I also, when I went into this, I, you know, I, I didn't want being trans to be any kind of mediating factor. So I didn't tell people I was trans. So I, I, I just went in like, you know, like any other cis guy uh, into this training. And I was really kind of almost immediately really shocked by like the camaraderie, the intimacy, the vulnerability. A sociologist later explained it to me that, you know, the cover of violence allows for men to like kind of let their guard down. So like as long as the activity itself is, you know, like USDA approved kind of like that, then then it allows it allows all of these sort of latent things that, you know, are not typically like allowed within like uh, within our regular lives to be part of our experience. And because boxing is like not a team sport but you need to train with others in order to get good at it like it creates this interesting dynamic where you know you have these other people who see everything about you because you're so stripped down when you're sparring and you know it's like not just your physical capacities which are meaningful but also like your mental state your spiritual state like you know what you ate that day and how it affected you and like there's just this constant conversation about your emotional world the guys i trained with saw we saw things in each other that were so private um and so personal that had to do with how we were reacting to being hit or you know why do i struggle to come forward or whatever it was like we would see that in each other and instead of doing what men typically do in those situations which is police each other and um you know really police the parameters of that man box instead people like helped you you know basically not even turn those things into strengths but just work with them you know work with the things that are vulnerabilities and weaknesses so that you can effectively use them in the ring because you're not going to get rid of all of those parts of yourself you have to learn to like use that energy just like you're using all the things that are like you know helpful in the ring so it was like I don't know, it was incredibly profound, you know, on on an intimacy level to like get to know each other so well and then also uh, feel so seen um, in this very kinesthetic, like physical way. Yeah. And and, I mean, at the same time, while you're, while all this is happening, it's it's in the context of when the frame is, we're all trying to get better at this one very specific pursuit. Mm -hmm. And the more we process this, like the better, you know, like you're going to get. Right. It's sort of like you can give another reason. You, right. you, you can assign a reason where we're going to get vulnerable, we're going to get physical, we're going to, mm-hmm. you know, um, other, you know, beyond the fact that 
well, it just feels good. Yeah, <laughs> true. <laughs> which which I, I, I think, you know, probably a lot of people would be uncomfortable yeah. with just, can we sit? Years ago, I heard the phrase, and uh, this is not my phrase, it was told to me, like, women talk face to face and men talk shoulder to shoulder. Hmm. And and I always thought it was interesting. And But what the, the point the person was trying to make was that sort of like the, the, the masculine domain is largely about let's do something where like we're working on, like either we're... <laughs> We're working shoulder to shoulder mm-hmm. on like at, at on a job or on an athletic team mm-hmm. or in a gym or something like that, and then stuff just comes out. Mm-hmm. But it's 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 not sort of been socialized into men. Not that it's innate or not innate, but right. it hasn't really, really been socialized to just kind of sit down and say like, "Can we talk? Like, right. can we just talk about our lives and like what's going well and what's yeah. not going well and 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 how I'm suffering or right. how I'm strong." And I don't know if that's true or not true, but but it felt true to me. At the yeah, time it was shared to me, and I I was personally I was not socialized as a sort of like a hyper masculine mm-hmm. person. Mm-hmm. I, I grew up with a, a, a hippie Potter mom mm-hmm. who was very in touch with that, and, and allowed me to be very in touch with like all parts of myself and yeah. express all parts of myself. But that pretense, I think you're right that there's a pretense to you know like. I mean, that's what the sociologists also meant by the cover of violence. Like when there's a pretense yeah. to what you're doing, that it allows you to access, like you said, it's not innate. And in fact, actually, boys and girls behave very similarly, uh, you know, especially around their friendships and their ability to have intimacy until they reach a, you know, a literal point around age 16 where they uh, start, uh, boys start pushing their male friends away um, and you know, have like a very different attitude and they do it almost like it feels to them like it's an unconscious thing, but it's not. I mean, it's, or it is, but it's like a very social thing. So it's not that, it's not that they never get the socialization that boys and men never have that socialization. It's that the socialization is rejected at some point. And I think when you then create these environments, I mean, hyper masculine environments um, generally create this. Like, as far as I understand, the military also like plays a lot into like creating fraternal bonding and intimacy bonding through violence and through um, through play uh, as part of violence. So yes, I, the shoulder to shoulder thing seems right to me. And, and I think the key piece of that is just that it's not so much that we've We've never socialized boys to have intimacy in any other way. It's just that we've told them that any other way isn't isn't male. You're not a real man unless you you know unless you find and then in fact men need intimacy so they find creative ways to have it you know and those ways tend to be physical. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. It's interesting. Also, I remember um, I think it was a piece in the Guardian that led off with your trainer uh-huh. who like down the road learned he's like. Oh, like I never knew because uh-huh. um, like, like you said, you, you didn't want that to be a part of the experience. Yeah. So like you kept your identity, your identity because yeah. um, you didn't want it to really sort of play a central role. And, mm-hmm. and it was interesting to see, like, I, I have no idea like how much more of the conversation wasn't in that article. It mm-hmm. wasn't it, but him basically saying, wouldn't have mattered at all to me. Like yeah. he, he was a great guy. Like I trained him the way I would train anybody mm-hmm. else in the world. Yeah. Um, but uh, just the idea of the, you know, this, the cover of violence, I think is, on the one hand, fascinating. On the one hand, devastating. Yeah, for um, sure. You know, it, and I wonder if it's so much violence as it is some sort of container that provides an, a, like a an extra reason yeah. Um, yeah. for people to access that parts of themselves yeah. um, without having to just make it the primary reason to go yeah, there. Yeah, totally. Well, it's like a language. And I mean, we do socialize boys and men out of like, for example, asking for help. No. So this is a great way to like, 
I mean, a lot of the guys I trained with seemed like they needed help in one way or another, you know? I mean, I think who else wants to sign up for something like this, you know? Like, and I think that having the, I don't know, it's like your coach is kind of almost like a therapist. I mean, what Danny said was, um, you know, that he, that he wouldn't have trained me any differently, but I think to me more privately, he, he did say, you know, I wouldn't have trained you any differently, but it would have been nice to know just because I know. It's one thing I didn't know about you, and I knew everything else. And that's sort of very much a a boxing coach's mentality. Like, tell me everything about yourself so I can understand why you're doing this or why you're doing that. Or, you know, it's important if you just broke up with your girlfriend or if, you know, you didn't get enough sleep or whatever. I think in his mind, it was something that maybe would have helped him understand something about me that he didn't that he didn't understand, but he didn't, it's not like he thought something was missing that he didn't know either, you know? Yeah. So like at worst, it's like just a part of my life that would have been just more information. Yeah. Um, it's like his, <laughs> his, his job was to not just train you physically, but to like deconstruct and reconstruct you psychologically. So right. you can understand how to make you at your best at exactly. the time when it was most. Yeah. And I think it honestly wouldn't have made a difference in terms of like how he trained me, but it might've made a difference in terms of what I might have been worried about or thinking about in terms huh. of the fight or like it wouldn't have been about my body necessarily. Although I do have a different center of gravity. Like I had to relearn. I mean, a lot of our training was like changing my center of gravity, which I'm sure he was like, why doesn't he, you know, why do we have to do this kind of training? But you know, people's bodies are different. There's all kinds of reasons. So I think it was less a physical thing or a mental thing in terms of like my background. I think it was more like what I might've been thinking about that he, that he didn't know. Um, yeah. Um, coming out of that whole experience, how do you feel like you're, you're different in, in meaningful ways? Mm. Well, I think that, I mean, a lot of ways I might, I'm different. One really big way is I think, you know, the experience was that I, the backbone of that book and, and generally what I was doing was the boxing as a way to ask this one big question. But then the way I, my process worked is that then I wrote down and tried to sort of refine, I think I ended up with like maybe 10 questions that were just all questions I had about how we socialize masculinity. And then I reported them all out. So I talked to like historians and neuroscientists and neurobiologists and developmental psychologists. And then that became my book. And so I think the blueprint of, instead of, just sort of like accepting things as they are at face value, but instead asking a question when something doesn't feel right or sit right, and then really trusting that I can find the answer out and then change whatever I want to change about myself or communicate to the world about it. Like that was a whole different approach to, you know, my transition and to masculinity than what I'd seen modeled. And and it felt like I went from feeling like, wow, this is something that's happening to me. Like when I leave the house, I'm I'm just inundated and I'm just sort of fighting upstream to try to just have like a, a happy life to being like, I feel like if something makes me uncomfortable, I can ask a question about it and I can see, you know, how did this come to be? And is this something I want to participate in? And how can I change it and be part of the solution instead of being part of the problem? And it gave me just a, a language and tools to do that. So on that level, on the on the biggest level, that's I think what changed the most. But in the terms of the actual learning to fight, I mean, I'd say the the biggest thing, the two biggest things that happened was I I found how to figured out how to have intimacy with other men, which was really important and like helped me understand a lot about you know myself, the people in my life, like the men I ended up talking to. You know, I've talked to ever since about all of this stuff. I think it really just changed my dynamic with with the men around me and with myself. And I think that the relationship I had with my body really changed, you know, mm-hmm. I, I, I figured out at some point, and now I tell people this all the time, you know, I'm, I'm a nonviolent person, which seems, but like, you know, I like go to Quaker meetings, like I'm, I'm truly someone who's not interested in violence in that way. But I think that 
some of us in this culture are taught to fight and some of us aren't and fighting is really human and animal <laughs> and i think that if you're a person who grew up socialized not to fight for your body you know or for your place in the world or for yourself learning how to fight is really important because it's a really key part of being a human being uh we need to learn to fight for things we believe in and we know, need to know how to protect ourselves and to be able to be aggressive when necessary and to come forward and i think learning how to do that you know with with some grace and elegance and within a context of a, of a sport that's like kind of almost like ballet frankly like but 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 within the context of a language was really really crucial for me and it really changed the way i saw fighting <laughs> and what the purpose of it is yeah know? um so as we as we sit here today and start to come full circle in this container of good life project. <laughs> if I offer up the phrase to live a good life, what comes up? Mm. I think to ask a lot of questions <laughs> and, you know, I think that there's a lot of, there's a lot of meaning even in the things that feel impossible or terrible or traumatic. I don't think that anything life gives you is something you can't handle. And that's not something I always would have said, you know, but the best way in my experience of learning how to handle it is by asking, asking questions and really like seeking out those answers and changing things that you want to change. Mm. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. And thanks also to our fantastic sponsors who help make this show possible. You can check them out in the links we have included in today's show notes. And while you're at it, if you've ever asked yourself, what should I do with my life? We have created a really cool online assessment that will help you discover the source code for the work that you're here to do. You can find it at sparkatype.com. That's S-P-A-R-K-E-T-Y-P-E. Com, or just click the link in the show notes. And of course, if you haven't already done so, be sure to click on the subscribe button in your listening app so you never miss an episode. And then share, share the love. If there's something that you've heard in this episode that you would love to turn into a conversation, share it with people and have that conversation. Because when ideas become conversations that lead to action, that's when real change takes hold. See you next time.